Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, grab your Bibles, open them up, digital, paper, whatever you got. I want you to have a Bible in front of you. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 10. I will eventually get there. And if you're new to our church, we're, we've been in this series uh, just called The Story of Jesus. And we've been slow stepping our way through the book of Mark, and uh, intentionally so. There's so much in here, and I've, I've skipped a lot of it, but I'm trying to slow walk us through this because the story of Jesus is the most important story in all of the scriptures. So here's what we're going to do. I will eventually get to a place where we're reading in Mark chapter 10, but I want to back our way into the teaching today. March 7th, 1965, was a day when courage crossed a bridge. It was a day when people had the opportunity to to demonstrate courage by walking across a bridge. The location? Selma, Alabama. It was the place where 600 demonstrators gathered for a peaceful march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge to protest this, the lack of African-American voters who were registered. As the march approached the bridge, the demonstrators, their their view of what was waiting for them on the other side was obscured. You see, as, as those 600 demonstrators, as they gathered and they looked out at the bridge, this bridge wasn't something that led straight across. There's an arch to this bridge that's several dozen feet high. And so as they stood on one side, they did not know what waited for them on the other side. One of the organizers of the protest who was marching that day, her name was Amelia Boynton Robinson. She's 54 years old at the, at the time. She's a wife. She's a mother. And she was just one row behind the figureheads of that march, John Lewis and Hosea Williams. As the peaceful march crested the top of the bridge, they could actually see what was waiting for them on the other side. See, in response to this peaceful march, the sheriff of the county outside of Selma, Jim Clark, that morning he had uh, made an announcement that all white males 21 years of age and older could come to the county uh, courthouse and, and be deputized as deputies so that they could meet this march with a show of force. They were equipped with gas masks, billy clubs, horses, so that they could disperse this march by whatever means necessary. This moment became one of the defining moments in civil rights history. And you can't help but just pause for a moment and just be astonished at the courage of people like Amelia. Amelia was one of the, uh, the organizers of this event. And as they crest this hill on the bridge, she's standing in the second row. And she's looking down on this oversized police force waiting on the other side for them. And you have to admit, you have a choice at that moment, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you have a choice at that moment. You can turn around. <laughs> you know, it's just not worth it. <laughs> you know that it's violence waiting for you. 
on the other side. You know that it's pain waiting for you on the other side. And the reality is this, is for every single one of us, we, we avoid pain as much as possible, right? I mean, that's just human instinct. It's our human nature, and it's a wise human nature. <laughs> but on March 7th, 1965, it's now known today as Bloody Sunday. Because Amelia and these demonstrators, like her, they chose courage. And they walked forward over the bridge. And once on the other side, Reverend Hosea Williams attempted to talk to one of the officers who was in command. And that officer responded with, there is nothing to talk about. And the police force just moved forward. And that day, 17 people needed to be hospitalized and over 50 people needed medical treatment. There was a photographer there that day that shot a picture of Amelia. Take a look at this. She's laying there unconscious, being held by a friend. This photo the next day shows up on the cover of the New York Times, as well as many other publications. And it would be a week later on March 15th that President Johnson convened a joint session of Congress and outlined a new voting rights bill. But journey with me back here, back to the apex of that bridge. And I want you to just linger over that moment. Amelia, the demonstrators, the leaders, they could have turned around instead of walking into danger. And as a spectator today, here's all I want to do with this image. I just want us to stand in astonishment of their courage. Because it made a difference. It made a difference that they chose courage, walked into violence, and walked into danger. It had an immediate effect. And you can't deny that it's had a ripple effect in our country. And now, as I say that, listen to me. I know there, there's all of us that we haven't arrived at some place where we're in some kind of uh, pure, equal, equality type of country. I mean, there's messes all over the place. You know why? Because our country's made up of people. And people tend to make messes. But if you go to the apex of that bridge, and you stand next to Amelia in your mind for just a moment, can you just look at her with eyes that are astonished by her courage? I can. I bring all this up because of this. It reminds me of a march that Jesus made. And it's recorded in, in the scriptures in, in Mark chapter 10. And most, most people just passed over it and they didn't even recognize it. And honestly, I've read this story so many times. But in the last month as I've read this story over and over, this is the thing that stood out to me. That there was a march happening and Jesus was at the front of the line of this march. And he was walking into something of violence. But to understand the story behind this, you have to understand the cycles. All right? So take a look at your notes for a moment, and if you're at home, you're going to see this on the screen as well. When Mark writes Jesus' story, he does it with a purpose in mind. Mark's a great writer, and like every writer, he knows this. If you want something to stick with people, you better repeat it over and over again. So Mark makes this point, and I'm going to call this the, the cycle of servant leadership, because as a cycle, he repeats something over and over and over again, because he's trying to say, as a follower of Jesus— there's this concept of leadership that most, most people in their world 2,000 years ago, they just didn't hold it as a value for leaders, and it's this. It's to be a servant. Here's the, how the cycle goes. The first step is this. Jesus predicted his death. 
Now, if you're in Mark chapter 10, you stay there for just a moment. But this cycle begins in chapter 8, is repeated in chapter 9, and is repeated again in chapter 10. Let me read this to you. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then it says he spoke plainly about this. He wasn't hiding it. He didn't use parables. There were no riddles. He was just speaking bluntly. Listen, the son of man, who I am, I am going to be rejected, beaten, and killed, and then rise again. And immediately following that statement, here's step two. His disciples respond selfishly. Selfishly so that there's no pain involved in their journey, so that they don't have to cross a bridge with courage. Here's Peter's response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. That's not how this goes. I have a a different plan, and my plan's actually better than your plan. And then immediately following that, Jesus begins this teaching on what servant leadership is. Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see that cycle, those three steps? Jesus, he predicts his death. And the disciples respond poorly. And then he teaches on servant leadership. All right, come back with me here for just a sec. That's just the first occasion. And that's all in chapter 8. If you take a look at chapter 9, he does this whole thing all again. He predicts his death. Let me read it to you. Mark nine thirty. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were going. <clears throat> Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He predicts his death. It's just plain, it's clear as day. The very next verse, the disciples respond selfishly. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they argued about who was the greatest. And then the very next verse, listen to this. Jesus teaches them about servant leadership. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. Are you getting what Mark's doing? He's saying, this is me. This is Jesus. This is who I am. I didn't come here for the glory and the honor. I actually came here to die. I'm going to walk into violence. I'm going to march into it with courage and embrace it. And I'm going to be killed. His disciples just don't get it because they're focused on maybe his victory over culture. They're focused on him taking power and control over over these Romans who were up until that moment oppressing them. And they just have this selfish perspective about let's avoid pain at all costs. Jesus, you're powerful. We've seen you do miracles. Let's use that power to overthrow. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. My approach is actually going to be peaceful. I'm going to walk into pain. And then he teaches them, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to serve me, you got to take the same approach. Look at chapter 10. This cycle is repeated for the third time. If you've got your Bibles open, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 32. Halfway through verse 32, it says this. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is actually the description of of what's waiting for Jesus on the other side of the bridge. It's at least clear to Jesus of what's going to happen to him and possibly to his disciples. And this, I mean, this third description, did you notice that it actually gets even more descriptive? There's even more detail. He doesn't just say, hey, he's going to be killed. What does he say? He will be mocked. He will, they, uh, he will, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And because this is a cycle, the disciples respond selfishly. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> I mean, Jesus just gets done giving them these, this description, the details of what's going to happen to him. And they're like, so Jesus... When the popularity comes, and when the honor comes, you know, me and my brother, we've just worked harder than the rest of them, right? Aren't we better than the rest? I mean, you already rebuked Peter. You told us he was an idiot. Can one of us be on your right? And can the other one sit on your left when you come in your glory? Jesus, we want to be the best. (laughs) They actually have no idea. And this discussion goes on, and Jesus essentially says, so when we cross the bridge into Jerusalem, what's waiting for us on the other side? Are you sure you want to be on my right and on my left? What's waiting for me is is being spit upon, beaten, rejected, flogged, and killed. You sure you want to be on my right and on my left? Because there's a spot there. There's an opening on my right, and there's an opening on my left, because I will die with one person on my right and one person on my left. You sure you want the spot? They don't get it. They just respond selfishly. And we know this. That when Jesus was arrested, what did his disciples do? Like cockroaches when the lights come on. They scatter. They don't want to be on Jesus' right and left because they want to avoid pain. They want to avoid sacrifice. And so the third step in this, right? Jesus teaches on servant leadership. Look at verse 43, halfway through there. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, don't miss this. This is like the, this is like the crowning apex of the book of Mark outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The statement about who he is and what he's come to do. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. I didn't come for the easy road. I didn't come to, to take the easy way out. I didn't come for the glory and the honor. Here's what I came for. I came to, be, to, to, to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a quick question for you. Um, y'all been in church before around New Year's? Pastors all like, hey, in the new year, let's do this. Are you anticipating where I'm headed with this? You're like, pastor's going to give us an opportunity to serve this year. To say, hey, how do you, as a followers of Jesus, how do you want to serve? And 
I'm not going to. I, I'm not going to talk about, hey, what contribution do you want to make this year to serving people and serving the world around you? I'm actually going to leave that to Pastor Josh for next Sunday. See, I actually want to pause because in the middle of this account, there was something that caught my attention that I've never seen before. And it's the moment on the apex of the bridge. It's the moment of courage. And I want you to see it. So look at chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. It states they're going up to Jerusalem, right? They're probably around the area of Jericho. And if you know the geography, Jericho is super, super low. And you actually have to climb 3,300 feet through the hills to get to Jerusalem. They're climbing their way up. So at this point, Jesus has told them three times, let me tell you what's on the other side. Let me tell you what's waiting for us. Let me tell you what's waiting for the Son of Man. This is what it's going to be like. The view should be clear, but they're winding their way up the hill. They can't actually see what's waiting for them on the other side. And in those days, rabbis, they would actually walk ahead of their disciples, and the disciples would kind of follow along. But literally, in this moment, Jesus is in front of this line. He's, he's, he's leading the march, and he's like, we are going to walk into Jerusalem. Join the march. And this is the phrase that caught my heart. The disciples were astonished. Mm. I mean, what is that? You're astonished. You look at someone and you just go, wow, I don't have that. Well, I, I admire that about them at that moment. It's, it's almost surprising. I'm surprised that that's who you are and what you're doing. You ever stood in astonishment? You look at it and you go, wow, the average person, they can't do that. It might be a character thing. It could be an ability but in this moment, here's what I think the disciples are doing. I think this is what Mark is, is commenting on. He's saying the disciples were astonished at what? I think it's this, first of all. It's his courage. They have some idea. They've been told multiple times of what's going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus isn't backing down. He's not pausing to think, man, is this worth it? Do I need to go do this? Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he's like, you ready, boys? Follow me. And he leads the march. And they stand in astonishment of his courage. So this morning, this is what I want to do. This morning, I want us to do what they did. I just want us to stand in astonishment of Jesus' courage. I'm not actually going to ask anything from you today or even have any application. All I want you to do is this. I just want you to imagine yourself on that road with Jesus leading the way. Now, we're not standing on the road in ignorance, right? Right? It's not that we don't know what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. We know that Jesus would enter Jerusalem and that conflict would intensify. 
We know that several times Jesus would go in the city of Jerusalem, then outside a couple miles away to the, the, the town of Be- uh, Bethany, and then he would go back and forth, and every time he would go back and forth, the, this, this conflict with, would get ex- just exacerbate. It, w- it would overflow, and it would come to this boiling point where the authorities that are there are looking to arrest him and kill him. We know that in the moment where Jesus would be arrested in the garden that his followers would just flee because they lacked the courage that Jesus had. We know that Jesus would be falsely accused. He would be beaten. He'd be flogged. And then he would be made to carry the cross beam of his cross up to this hill called Golgotha. And because we already know the end of the story, we, we know that that beam would be laid down and that he would be stretched across it and he would be nailed to the cross through his hands. And then his feet would be nailed to the post. That would be hoisted, dropped, and he would hang there to suffer, die by suffocation. That was the intent of the cross, right? It was intended to humiliate, to cause as much pain as possible and to be a spectacle for the community that there was only one king and his name was Caesar. That's why they crucified people. We know that from a distance his followers would watch as their courageous leader willingly gave up his life. So I want us to go back to the road and pause at Jesus marching into Jerusalem. And just admires courage. I want us to stand in astonishment. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have our band come out. And I, I want our worship team to just lead us in worship for a moment. And this might be a time for you to pray. It might be a time for you to sing along. Whatever it is. Maybe you'll actually close your eyes and just imagine the road to Jericho. And Jesus, he's already explained this servant leadership of what it means for him to press on ahead and what will happen to him. You know the story. And yet Jesus willingly marches on. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to end our service a little differently. I want us to just have a worship moment where we stand in astonishment of Jesus' courage. And then I'll be back up in just a moment. I'm going to share one more thing with you uh, before we end. So let's just pause for this moment. Ben, would you lead us? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. How he could love of me, a sinner condemned unclean. See how marvelous, how wonderful in my song shall
Take a seat for just a moment, because um, there's something else on that road. As Jesus is leading the march into Jerusalem, uh, I think there's something else that's happening there. It, it, they're not, not just astonished by his courage. And may, maybe they didn't fully grasp it at that moment. We're not quite sure how much the disciples grasped, because, man, they, they say a lot of foolish things. But knowing the story that we know and how we know the end of the story, when you stand and see Jesus there in that moment, I think there's one more thing that's astonishing, and it's his love. Because it wasn't just his courage that led him to Jerusalem. It was his love for people that led him to Jerusalem. Uh, you're pretty aware of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream, right? There's a line in there that stands out to me. It says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the quality of their character, right? You know that statement? What's he saying? What it is that I'm doing today, being at the front of this march today, walking across a bridge today, enduring pain, violence, and suffering, I'm not doing it just for me. I'm doing it for my kids because there's a ripple effect that, that I'm hoping to make with my life. And I think that's what Jesus 
is undeniably saying about himself. Because following this moment where they stand in astonishment of Jesus, he makes that statement, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. But he's saying, but this is why I came. I came to serve, and I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come for the prestige. He came to serve. His way of serving was to to give his life as a ransom. What's a ransom? I mean, you know this. If someone gets kidnapped, you get a phone call, a letter, something, and it's a ransom demand. You want to set that captive free? Then it's going to cost you this. You want to set people free from sin and separation from God? This is the ransom. Death. Not by a person who is guilty of sin, because they're held in captivity to sin too. The captive isn't the ransom. That ransom of death has to be paid by an innocent person. Jesus, who never sinned. This sinless, perfect Lamb of God would pay our ransom for our sin. The cost was his life on the cross. He did it for us. So when we stand in astonishment of who Jesus is and what he's done, we can stand in astonishment of his courage. But please don't miss this. We have to stand in astonishment of his love for us. Because he went to the cross, listen to this, for some people he would never meet, for people who didn't deserve it, people like you and me. And so here's how we're going to end. I want to have a moment where just we recognize that Jesus did that for us. We stand in astonishment of his love. If I can sidetrack for just a moment. I'll bet you've had the same experience I have in this COVID season, where you hear these COVID numbers, and they're just kind of out there, and you can see them online, read about them, you're like, oh, these are the current COVID numbers. And honestly, you don't care. I don't care. And what I mean by that is this. It's not personal yet until your family gets sick. Until in the last three weeks, right, after Christmas, you've had this, oh my goodness, it's been this person sick and this person sick, and wait, they're all in my circle. And for the first moment, it's not numbers on a page, it's, it's those around me. You know, what that, you know what that is? It's the feeling of, this has now become personal. And for those of you that have lost people over COVID, it's very personal. Can I take that analogy And bring that to Jesus and the cross. It's words on a page that his life is a ransom for many. It's just words on a page that he died on a cross for you and for me. It's just words on a page. And I don't know how to make it personal. That he didn't die for the world. It's not his love for the world. It's his love for you. And all I can do is invite you to stand on the road that leads up to Jerusalem and watching Jesus as he walks forward, knowing what he's about to walk into, and invite you to stand in astonishment of his courage and invite you to stand in astonishment that he did that for you. The truth is this, I can't make it personal for you. And I'm kind of convinced that I'm not even sure you can make it personal for you. 
But you certainly can invite God to make it personal for you. God, I don't know how you do this, but I know you do this. That that sacrifice you made, would you help my hard heart to see how personal it is to me? So here's how we do this as believers. You might have already gotten this, that we do this in communion. Because the night that Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And he handed it to his disciples to eat. He's like, make this a part of you. And he took this cup and he holds it up. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new relationship that we're going to have. Because my blood is about to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says, take this and drink this. So for the last 2,000 years, here we do. We, we take bread and we break it and we eat it. So that it's not just words on a page, but it's personal to us. We take juice and we drink it as the symbol of his body and his blood. So that it'll keep being personal to us. Because if you walked with Jesus for 50 years, you'll have to admit this. There's moments where you're like, feels like words on a page. Maybe I've lost how personal this is. That I can stand in astonishment of his courage and his love for me. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to end by just having a moment of communion. And there's elements around the room and in the balcony. Maybe for you at home that are watching online, maybe go to the fridge right now. (laughs) Find some bread and some juice and celebrate this together with the people that are with you. If you're a follower of Christ, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is not for you. Because you have yet to cross that line of faith. Can I ask you this question? Would you be willing to pray the prayer? Jesus, would you make it personal for me? I'm unsure, but would you open yourself up to say, man, if this is true, God, would you convict me of this? Convince me of this. He does that all the time. And if today you want to make it personal for you, just invite that. But if he does, would you pray the prayer and say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe you died on a cross as the ransom for my sins. And so God, would you forgive me of my sins and would you help me from this day forward to walk in relationship with you? And if you do that prayer today, please don't be anonymous. Tell somebody, tell me, tell one of our staff, email one of us. If you're at home and you're watching online, email one of us. Info at churchonthehill.com. Well, here's why. Because there, every decision for Christ is always personal. But it's never anonymous. You're connected to a family of God who will love you and support you. So if you want to do that today, do that. And then go take bread and juice. And for the first time in your life, receive this. Because it's personal. It's about your forgiveness and your relationship with God. So that you have that today and in eternity. So for God's people, I pray that you receive communion today. And that you might stand in astonishment of his courage and his love for you. Let's enter into that together.